Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we're very excited to bring you the news. Derek, why don't we start with Gaza and particularly the ceasefire talks? Yes. So uh, there's been some buzz around this for a couple of days now. On Monday, there was a report in Axios, which you know take or leave but but it does have uh, they do have good sources about this uh, kind of stuff so uh, when things get leaked it's probably fairly reliable anyway axios reported on monday that the israeli government had made an offer to hamas f- f- with a new ceasefire package the ceasefire would run for 2 months it would include prisoner exchanges that would see all of the remaining israeli hostages in gaza released in return for some undetermined number of Palestinian prisoners, uh, but it, it would have a definite end. So there was no possibility of extending it past that two months. The Israelis would resume hostilities for certain at the end of that two month period, uh, perhaps at a in a different fashion or at a lower level of intensity or something like that. But they were definitely going to, to restart their attacks. Uh, this was unacceptable to Hamas, which has been insisting that if it's going to trade all the hostages away, it wants a full, indefinite ceasefire. Two Egyptian security sources said there was work underway to convince Hamas to accept a one-month truce to be followed by a permanent ceasefire. However, Hamas is requesting guarantees that the permanent ceasefire would be carried out to agree to the initial truce. Consequently, uh, negotiations continued and uh, the Reuters reported uh, on uh, Wednesday that the two sides had come to a broad agreement in principle uh, on the framework of a different deal that would instead have a one-month cessation of hostilities, one-month ceasefire, including prisoner exchanges. I don't know that it would have been all of the hostages out of Gaza, or at least what they were talking about at that stage. But the idea was instead of this two-month indefinitely done thing, the one-month ceasefire would be potentially uh, extendable. Uh, so you know they could do a step-by-step negotiation on uh, trying to keep the ceasefire going. That has been the basis of the talks that have continued through the week. The hang-up is that. Hamas wants written into this deal, reportedly anyway, Hamas wants written into this deal a pathway to a permanent ceasefire or at least, a, you know, whatever passes for a permanent ceasefire. The Israelis don't want that. They want to do this step by step, uh, I think, presumably because uh, at one of those steps, they would prefer to start fighting again. They would rather not lay out any kind of path to to a ceasefire, that permanent ceasefire that they might have to then break uh, or something of that nature. Uh, now, on uh, Thursday, not long before we recorded this, uh, the website Al Monitor reported uh, that the Israeli War Cabinet is meeting to discuss a slightly altered framework. It is a 35-day ceasefire that would include uh, the release of all the Israeli hostages. Uh, they have not determined how many Palestinian prisoners would be released by the Israelis or who they would be. That's one of the hang-ups 
over this apparent deal of according again to to Al Monitor. And the other hangup is still this issue of whether or not the deal would have an explicit kind of pathway toward a permanent ceasefire. Hamas is still demanding that. The Israelis are still resisting. Uh, the Biden administration has dispatched CIA Director Bill Burns, who is uh, its actual Secretary of State in many ways. Uh, he's certainly more effective at it than Anthony Blinken. Uh, they've dispatched him to Europe, uh, where he's supposed to meet with Israeli and Egyptian intelligence officials, as well as the Prime Minister of Qatar, to discuss the terms of, of this uh, ceasefire and see if there is a way to, to bridge this gap. Uh, but I don't know. And it's, it's sort of a make or break thing, I think, uh, in terms of whether this, uh, whether Hamas and uh, the Israelis can come to a, a, an agreement about uh, the nature of the agreement and, 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 and or can come to some common ground uh, about whether or not there's going to be any path to a permanent ceasefire if they're just going to do this uh, piecemeal. Let's talk about Netanyahu, who has recently snubbed Qatar. Um, what went on there? Yeah, this potentially could have some play or have something to do with the ceasefire negotiations because, of course, uh, the uh, the Qataris are, along with the Egyptians, the primary mediator of Israel and Hamas don't talk to one another, and the U.S. doesn't talk to Hamas. Uh, Hamas is only talking through Egypt and, and uh, the Qataris. There was a story in Israeli media this week where Netanyahu was caught essentially on a hot mic. He was recorded during a a meeting with the families of uh, at least some of the hostages, and it's unclear who leaked the recording, but he was recorded uh, disparaging Qatar, um, saying he has no illusions about, you know, things like, no illusions about their motives. He called them problematic. Of course, he also calls the United Nations and the Red Cross problematic, uh, arguing that they are biased against Israel, which is, uh, well, you can make of that what you will. But this has offended the Qataris. Now, the Qataris do have a relationship with Hamas. They have sheltered uh, or uh, hosted a number of senior Hamas leaders, including uh, they're currently hosting the group's political leader, Ismail Haniyeh, much in the same way that as they have hosted uh, Afghan Taliban diplomatic office uh, for several years, uh, which has provided a useful at times conduit for the outside world to to talk to these people. Uh, they have also, since 2018, been sending millions of dollars to Gaza, ostensibly to pay public sector salaries. They did this with the blessing uh, of not just the Israeli government, but also the Trump administration back at the time, because this was all considered to be part of the Trump-Netanyahu approach of just like throwing money at Palestine, uh, Palestinians to see if they would uh, stop complaining about freedom and self-determination and just, you know, count their money and uh, let it go. Clearly that didn't work, but that was their plan. And, you know, Qatar has been instrumental in whatever negotiations have gone on here, that November ceasefire where over a hundred hostages were released, that was completed in part because of this relationship that Qatar has with Hamas. So for Netanyahu to turn around and, and sort of be ridiculing the Qataris in, in private, as you might expect, did not go over well with the Qataris. They have accused Netanyahu of uh, obstructing the mediation process. They've threatened to pull out of the talks. So, uh, you know, this is something I think the Biden administration Will have to manage because if if the Qataris were to quit their mediation role, it would be a huge setback uh, for all of this. Uh, whatever diplomacy is going on, it would be uh, it, you know would be very very difficult to replace them. 
Let's talk about the situation in Gaza, and particularly in Khan Yunus, and also what's going on in northern Gaza now. So uh, Khan Yunus, uh, there was a report uh, earlier this week, uh, I believe on Tuesday, uh, the Israeli military said that it had uh, its forces had encircled Khan Yunus. Uh, this was this is uh, not not unlike uh, earlier in this conflict they when they encircled Gaza City and then the real pounding began. Uh, this has uh, caused a great deal of consternation. Uh, both in Khan Yunus in Gaza and elsewhere, because Khan Yunus is uh, bursting at the seams with hundreds of thousands of people who were forced to leave northern Gaza and Gaza City uh, when the Israelis, uh, you know, really took off. And, and in that region, you may recall, they, you know, ordered them to evacuate. On Wednesday, just as, you know, these negotiations about the ceasefire were, were potentially. Uh, either breaking open or breaking down. The IDF reportedly ordered civilians to evacuate a big chunk of the western part of Khan Yunus, which is an area that holds around 500,000 people, uh, more than 80% of them displaced from other parts of the Gaza Strip, and also uh, contains two of the few remaining functional hospitals in Gaza, including Nasser Hospital, the biggest uh, still-working hospital in Gaza, so a big chunk of the, the remaining hospital capacity, plus uh, all of these people, many of whom are not in Khan Yunus by choice and don't exactly have a, a, a strong network that they could just pick up and relocate again. Doctors say they're struggling to treat patients. I'm telling you, the hospital is on the brink of collapse. We all are. We're running out of medical staff and supplies. Nothing is reaching us. There's nothing in the hospital to treat patients with. No painkillers, no anesthetics, no medical resources. Uh, so there's a great deal of concern uh, about this, about what's going to happen in Khan Yunus. Should the operation continue? And, and if this ceasefire deal that you know appears to be uh, under consideration doesn't come through, I think uh, could be, uh, I hesitate to use the word bloodbath, but, but could certainly be very bad. Thank you, Derek. Uh, let's talk about this recent attack in which 21 IDF soldiers were killed. Uh, yes. I mean, I'm sure people saw this story. Uh, there was a group of Israeli soldiers who were uh, essentially wiring up uh, a building or a couple of buildings uh, to destroy them, to do a you know controlled detonation uh, near the Gaza fence. Uh, they were attacked by Hamas militants using uh, an RPG. The militants fired the RPG into this building that had already been wired to blow up, and it, it caused the explosives to go off, caused a chain reaction, and 21 uh, Israeli soldiers were killed. This is a, a you know the highest single incident death toll that the Israeli military has taken uh, in Gaza since this situation began on October 7th. And it made for the highest single-day loss of life for the IDF uh, since the conflict began. I, I, it's, I'm sure, shocking uh, or was shocking to the Israeli public. It's also interesting in that the Israelis essentially admitted after this attack that they were there to commit a war crime. They, were, they, they said they were demolishing these buildings to, uh, as part of a plan to create a buffer zone inside Gaza, uh, unpopulated, uh, you know, security zone. Typically, when they blow up these buildings and they've blown up, they've done this with a number of buildings, these demolitions, these controlled demolitions in Gaza. 
typically they say there's a tunnel or, or you know, this is a, being used as a militant hideout or something. They've done it with a lot of government buildings and cultural buildings, I think, uh, in an attempt to, to sort of erase some of the history of Gaza, which is uh, fairly insidious. But uh, this is the kind of thing that's going on. In this case, they just said, yeah, we're, we're creating a buffer zone inside Gaza and we need to destroy these buildings. Well, uh, there's a couple of problems with that. First of all, it, it violates international law, which is very strict about destroying civilian buildings in, in occupied territories unless it's militarily necessary. And, you know, say what you want. Creating a buffer zone in Gaza, especially right now, is not uh, does not seem to cross the threshold of military necessity. Uh, it would be if there were people actually in the building. Uh, you know, if there was some command structure in the building or something like that, uh, you could make the case. Uh, the second thing is that it it violates one of the Biden administration's alleged red lines for this conflict, which is that there will be no territorial reduction uh, in post-war Gaza. Creating a buffer zone is exactly what the administration was talking about when they, uh, I think Anthony Blinken, a, you know, a couple of months ago uh, said this, and it was exactly what he was talking about was the idea that uh, the Israelis might try to create some kind of buffer zone off Gaza territory. Uh, so, you know, this is another instance where the Israelis are just kind of thumbing their nose at uh, the Biden administration. I'm sure there will not be any blowback for that, but uh, just another and maybe uh, in this case, especially prominent example. Let's turn to the ICJ decision, which will actually come out the day this is released. But Derek, uh, what do you want to say about it? Yes, the Court of Justice, the International Court of Justice announced on Wednesday that it will issue on Friday a provisional ruling in the South African uh, case, the, the case that South Africa brought, uh, alleging that uh, the Israelis are committing genocide uh, in Gaza. This is not the final ruling uh, on that petition, which could be years away and, and you know, would uh, require more intense focus on whether or not the Israelis are actually committing Gaza. The parameters for a provisional ruling are lower. They only say that the South Africans have to prove that there is enough evidence of a possible genocide taking place that the court uh, is obliged to step in and take emergency action uh, in, a, in a temporary injunction sense. Uh, we don't know what the ruling is going to be. It could be nothing. I mean, they could, they could issue a ruling that says we nothing to see here, move on. But they could issue uh, any number of, there's any number of directions they could go up to and including uh, ordering the Israelis to, and Hamas to stop fighting for, and you know, impose a full ceasefire. They could also make rulings about the uh, inadequacy of the humanitarian aid operation uh, and oblige the Israelis to take steps on that front. I say oblige, you know, as we've said before, rulings from the International Court of Justice are binding in a strictly paper sense, but they're they're not enforceable uh, if the United States, say, or another uh, major player in the UN, major UN member were to decide to enforce them, that would be one thing. But uh, in this case, that's not going to happen. The U.S. certainly wouldn't uh, enforce it and it will prevent anybody else from doing so either. So the Israelis will be free to ignore a ruling that doesn't go in their favor, but it would do some reputational damage. It would damage their standing. It would damage the United States standing, I think, uh, in the world, especially with as much uh, you know blather as we make about uh, following the rules, et cetera. Uh, so you know, it's something to consider. Speaking of the United States' love of rule and love of democracy, let's talk about Yemen, where the U.S. appears to be preparing for a long-term campaign. Uh, yes. Over the weekend, the Washington Post was, uh, I think, first with this, but other outlets have picked it up that the Biden administration 
having determined that its initial flurry of airstrikes on uh, Houthi missile sites and, and you know, command and control sites in northern Yemen didn't work. And I guess you could say uh, it determined that because the Houthis kept attacking commercial ships and actually escalated their activities despite the airstrikes, that the uh, Biden administration is now preparing for a sustained military campaign. Uh, I think another word for that is war. You can't call it a war because then they'd have to seek congressional authorization. So they probably won't call it a war, but it certainly seems like that's what you used to call sustained military campaigns. I, I don't know if the, uh, the verbiage has changed. So, you know, we're back to war in the Middle East, I guess, in an election year. Uh, congratulations to everybody in the Biden administration for, uh, for pulling it off. I didn't think they could, uh, could manage it, but, but they've done it. Good job, guys. Um, let's talk about the effect of sanctions on humanitarian relief. Yeah, there was uh, an interview at Responsible Statecraft about this, and it's been sort of kicked around uh, in other places. But the U.S., uh, as I believe we, we might have mentioned last week, the U.S. Uh, redesignated the Houthis or Ansar Allah as a specially designated global terrorist group. Uh, this was restoring one of the two terrorist designations that the Trump administration slapped on the group that the Biden administration very quickly after taking office withdrew precisely because they were concerned about the effect that these things might have on, uh, for example, peace talks or humanitarian operations. Uh, we're not concerned about this anymore, uh, I suppose. But uh, it, there, it is, uh, I think the administration has insisted that uh, whatever sanctions it imposes under the new designation, it will be very, very careful, of course, to uh, make sure that humanitarian operations are not affected in a region that uh, has suffered maybe the worst humanitarian crisis of the last uh, 10 years. Now, maybe Gaza at this point is worse. Maybe uh, Ethiopia is worse, parts of Ethiopia at least. But overall, if you go back to when this that conflict started in 2015 and the Saudis imposed a blockade on the region, it has been the world's worst crisis over that period of time. There's no reason to think that any amount of exemptions or uh, holes or, or whatever they're going to put in the sanctions will work. It never does. The U.S. always says we're going to exempt humanitarian relief uh, and you know humanitarian trade whenever it imposes sanctions, and that never does the trick. Uh, this is because the sanctions themselves have an overall chilling effect. They they cause banks to say, okay, you know, we we don't want to do business here because we don't want to risk running afoul of sanctions and. Uh, if banks won't get involved, then nothing gets done. That's typically the way it's been, and that's the way it will surely be here. American Prestige is brought to you in partnership with The Nation magazine. Please consider becoming a subscriber at AmericanPrestigePod.com forward slash subscribe. As a subscriber, you'll get access to dozens of exclusive bonus episodes, including breaking news specials, deep dives into regional histories, analysis of movies and video games, and much more. And if you subscribe at the founder's level, you'll be able to claim a year digital subscription to The Nation. Thank you for listening. And now, back to the show. Let's talk about Iraq, where uh, listeners will be happy to learn there are still quite a few U.S. troops. Yeah, so this is again from Reuters. Uh, they reported on Wednesday that the U.S. and Iraqi governments, I think they were first to report it, that the U.S. and Iraqi governments are preparing to begin talks on disbanding the vaunted coalition to defeat the Islamic State, uh, which they did several years ago, but they haven't disbanded yet for some reason. The potential ramification of this could be a U.S. military 
departure from Iraq, or at least a, a, a drawing down of the U.S. military's presence in Iraq, which is something that I, I think we've covered here. Uh, the Prime Minister of Iraq, Mohammad Shia Sudani, has been talking about for a few weeks now as the U.S. continues to uh, take a, take upon itself the right to conduct airstrikes against Iraqi militia groups, just uh, you know, in what it claims always claims is self-defense. Uh, nevertheless, these are violations of Iraqi sovereignty, uh, which the U.S., of course, doesn't really recognize. Uh, but Sudani has been getting increasingly, uh, I don't know if he himself personally is irritated by this, but certainly there are political forces in Baghdad to which he has to be accountable uh, that are irritated by it. And so he's been sounding, uh, making some noise about asking the U.S. military to amscray. Uh, this could be the first step toward that. As I say, it could could wind up with uh, maybe just a drawdown, not a full withdrawal. Uh, it could mean nothing changes and that the Iraqis and the U.S. negotiate uh, a different deal, a bilateral security arrangement where the U.S. just leaves its forces there. The Biden administration has signaled that it's open to some degree of withdrawal. I don't know if it's open to a total withdrawal. It had been resisting Sudani's rhetoric about this. I think mainly because it doesn't want to look like the U.S. is being chased out of Iraq by these uh, Iranian proxy militias. Uh, but it seems to have changed its tune slightly. Uh, we'll see what what comes out of these negotiations. Uh, but uh, yeah, this could be could be a stress uh, the beginnings of a of a U.S. departure. Sudani, for for his own part, uh, I'm not sure he wants a full U.S. withdrawal. Iraqi prime ministers for you know going back really to the end of the Iraq war have been playing the US and Iran uh, somewhat against them against each other uh, and trying to find a middle ground that, that allows them some room to operate and so if the US were to leave entirely that would that might not really suit uh, Sudani politically because then he would be much more sort of at the uh, at, at the whims of, of the Iranians I guess who do have a, a, a considerable amount of influence in Iraqi politics. Uh, so he may prefer that the U.S. stay in some capacity as a counterweight. Uh, but who knows? We'll, we'll see, I guess. So Pakistan and Iran have recently had some uh, an escalation between them, uh, but things have cooled down. Derek, what happened? Yeah, we, I, we talked last week about this. The Iranians struck a Baluch. They struck some Baluch, uh, what they said were Baluch separatists in Pakistan. Uh, last week, the Pakistanis retaliated by striking what they said were Baluch separatists in Iran. Uh, on Friday, uh, the the two governments agreed that uh, they were done and and that they didn't need to do that anymore uh, and to to de-escalate and and restore their cooperation in counterterrorism and other areas. There was, I mean, there was always a slight risk that this was going to escalate into something. Uh, much bigger, but I think the uh, the Iranian uh, initial Iranian action, which was uh, I think more oriented toward domestic politics, the, the Iranian establishment has been under some scrutiny after the 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 Kerman bombing earlier this month that killed I think ninety four people at at last count the terrorist attack. Uh, they've been under uh, some scrutiny for their failure to to prevent that attack. Uh, and so, you know, lashing out in this way is sort of a show of strength. It, it appe appeases uh, certain constituencies in Tehran. Uh, this was really uh, primarily a demonstration of force in a place that Iran thought uh, would have limited repercussions uh, in terms of uh, uh, the risk of escalation. 
Uh, I think they underestimated how uh, this would uh, put the Pakistani government in a very difficult uh, situation. The Pakistanis calibrated their response, I think, to provide an opening to de-escalate by not attacking uh, Iran per se, but attacking these, you know, quote unquote, Baluch separatists, which was the same thing the Iranians had done. So it was clearly, you know, I think clearly meant to be like, we're getting our pound of flesh, so to speak, but we, you know, we don't want this to, uh, we don't want to do anything that's going to be so provocative that it causes another Iranian response and things escalate from there. And, and sure enough, on Friday, they agreed that, uh, you know, this was good. They, you know, we hit your guys, you hit our guys, we're, we're done now. Staying in the region, Indian Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi has apparently opened a large Hindu temple. Uh, Derek, tell us this story. Yeah, this was an interesting uh, development this week. Uh, Modi opened uh, a new temple to the Hindu god Lord Ram at, at the city in the city of Ayodhya. Uh, this temple is built on the site of a former mosque uh, that was torn down by a Hindu mob in 1992. The mob was motivated by the claim that Muslims had actually built the mosque intentionally on the site of Lord Ram's birth uh, to insult Hindus, essentially. Uh, so, and, and that that attack spurred uh, riots around the country, and uh, uh, a large number of Muslims were killed uh, in the ensuing uh, incident. What was interesting about Tuesday's event is that Modi was not just there as sort of the... Uh, the leader of India kind of to oversee this big new temple development. He actually like formally opened the site in a religious sense. It was a combination really of a religious ceremony and a political rally. India is uh, going to be heading into uh, elections and Modi uh, clearly looking to activate his Hindu nationalist base. Uh, so this turned out to be, you know, uh, uh, as much political as, as religious. Let's talk about Cameroon, where in some good news, a malaria vaccine program has just kicked off. Yes, I was looking for anything that could be classified as good news, because uh, this seemed like a particularly grim roundup. And the uh, Cameroonian government this week uh, inaugurated a new uh, malaria vaccine program. It is the first uh, malaria, national malaria vaccine, systematic malaria vaccine program in the world. It's using a, a vaccine that was developed uh, and approved by uh, the World Health Organization um, uh, back in 2021. It was the first malaria vaccine to gain WHO approval. Uh, and so they're rolling it out to all children six months of age or younger, free of charge, uh, there are a number of African countries that are expected to follow suit, but uh, really, you know, malaria is still uh, a huge killer. It, it takes uh, somewhere on the order of 600,000 lives per year, um, the vast majority of them children. Uh, so uh, potentially good news there. Now, back to the bad news where I back feel most comfortable. News, yeah. Let's talk about well, We had a little intermission break. <laughs> Let's talk about Somalia and Ethiopia. So the Somali-Ethiopia uh, relationship continues to flounder because of this, uh, you know, something we've talked about, this deal that uh, the Ethiopian government cut with the unrecognized government of Somaliland over uh, access to uh, the Berbera port. And they're also leasing or they're leasing territory uh, near that port for a potential naval base. Uh, 
Somali, the president of Somalia, Hassan Sheikh Mohamud, has been traveling uh, around the wider region to sort of uh, curry support with uh, potentially friendly countries. Uh, as you know, the threat the threat here ultimately is war. I mean, he has threatened his government has threatened to go to war if if Ethiopia recognizes Somaliland's independence or takes any step to sort of actualize Somaliland's claimed independence, they are potentially ready to fight over that. And so he went to Egypt uh, last week. Uh, he's now gone to Qatar. Uh, I don't know uh, the outcome of his visit to Qatar, but uh, certainly in Egypt, he got a lot of rhetorical support from Abdel Fattah Sisi, the, uh, the leader of Egypt, who was very... Uh, has his own problems with Ethiopia, first of all, over the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam and, and concerns about water on the Nile, water levels on the Nile. Uh, also probably has some concerns about the Ethiopian military developing naval capability on the Red Sea uh, and, you know, through his uh, 100% support behind Somalia. So if this should happen to escalate to war, it will definitely have a regional component to it uh, that I think, uh, you know, uh, he probably is is something the world could do without at this point. I think we could do without any more uh, military conflicts uh, for a while. Noah, Derek, I'm always saying give peace a chance. People just aren't listening. Uh, let's talk about <laughs> Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in, in terrible news, Ukrainians have shot down a plane full of their own POWs. Yes, uh, it appears that the Ukrainian military shot down a Russian military transport plane. Well, I mean, they, they definitely shot down, I guess, the plane um, over uh, Western Russia's Belgorod Oblast uh, on Wednesday. Uh, this is not all that uh, unremarkable. The, the Ukrainians uh, say that they regularly fire on these transport planes under the assumption that they're carrying missiles or other weapons to, to you know, Russian forces uh, in Ukraine. In this case, however, the plane in question was apparently carrying 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war who were heading to a prisoner exchange. Uh, they, along with the six crew members and three Russian soldiers aboard, were killed. Um, Ukrainian officials have not, to my knowledge, commented on whether or not they shot down this particular plane, except to say that, uh, that the Russian government had not informed them that this was the flight that was carrying the prisoners. They do say there was a scheduled prisoner swap that was supposed to have taken place, but they uh, uh, they say the Russians hadn't told them that, uh, you know, don't shoot this plane down. I'm not sure why the Russians would, would necessarily do that, but uh, yeah, they, they didn't get any advance warning uh, from the Russians. They're still not, you know, admitting that they actually uh, did shoot it down. The Russian government is pushing for a UN Security Council meeting. I don't know. That was as of uh, Wednesday. I don't know if that's gone anywhere, but they were pushing for a, a Security Council meeting to discuss it. Let's talk about Sweden, where there's actually been uh, some updates on its NATO membership. Yes, uh, uh, the, our long national nightmare is over, I guess. Uh, the Turkish parliament voted on Tuesday to ratify Sweden's accession to NATO. Finally, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, I believe on Thursday, just not long before we recorded this, uh, officially you know, signed off on it. Uh, you know, He was obviously going to do that or else he wouldn't have uh, put it to parliament in the first place. Uh, and so Sweden is one big step closer to joining NATO. It is still not all the way there, however, because the Hungarian government uh, is remains now the lone holdout. They still have not ratified uh, Swedish membership. And I think they were a little bit taken by surprise 
uh, by the Turkish move because I'm not sure that Viktor Orban uh, and the gang in, in Budapest was prepared to be the last sort of point of resistance here. I think they would have preferred to leave that to Turkey. So the fact that the Turks have already moved on this has put the, the Hungarians in the spotlight. They have never really articulated why they haven't they haven't already voted uh, on Sweden Sweden's accession. But uh, Orban uh, invited uh, the Prime Minister of Sweden, Ulf Christensen, to come to Budapest to sort of discuss uh, the issue. Christensen, I think, uh, has agreed to do that. Uh, so that may be some face saving thing where you know Orban will say, "Well, uh, we've solved all our problems, whatever those might have been." Uh, and uh, we'll go. They'll go ahead with it. I, I suspect that Hungary is not going to going to hold out much longer here. They they uh, didn't with Finland. I mean, in the case of Finland, both Hungary and Turkey were the last two again uh, to ratify Finland's membership. But the Hungarians uh, got you know kind of saw that the Turks were preparing to vote on this uh, on that, and they they moved quickly to go first uh, so that they wouldn't be the last country standing. Uh, and I think that Orbán will try to get this off of his plate. Uh, fairly soon. The other thing that's going to happen now uh, is most likely is that the U.S. government will approve uh, the long-delayed sale of, a, uh, uh, I think, about 40 modern F-16s, as well as a number of kits to modernize uh, Turkey's existing F-16s. Uh, this sale has been held up on many grounds, but it became clear in, in recent months that uh, there was an expli- almost explicit quid pro quo. The Erdogan had made it explicit. The Biden administration hasn't gone quite that far, but it's been clear that they they had set up a quid pro quo where if Turkey voted to approve Sweden's accession, that the, the F-16 sale would go through. And I think the Biden administration is now pressuring Congress to to finally move on that. Derek, let's end with Argentina, where there have been protests to the new prime minister's shock therapy program. Yeah, you could take this as another uh, happy story, I guess, depending on your point of view. But uh, labor unions in Argentina held a mass 12-hour strike on Wednesday. Uh, There were protests across the country, uh, especially in Buenos Aires. Uh, At least 80,000 people turned out there, and that was the official figure. So I think uh, it's safe to say that the reality was probably, the real figure was probably uh, higher and maybe significantly higher. Uh, the Argentine Argentine Congress is considering, uh, and I think it's gotten through the first uh, first kind of uh, legislative hurdle uh, legislation that would uh, enact a big part of Malay's uh, shock therapy agenda. A lot of uh, heavy deregulation, privatization, privatization of state enterprises, uh, all kinds of wonderful libertarian uh, voodoo, and uh, you know he's clearly. Uh, under the gun. I don't think, uh, I think this is the earliest anybody uh, in Argentine history, the, the, the earliest that a, a protest and strike like this has been organized against a president. I mean, he hasn't been in office. Uh, I don't think he's even been there for a month at this point. Uh, so definitely he is uh, not getting a honeymoon period, uh, at least as far as the labor unions are concerned. And it will be uh, interesting to see if that has any effect on Congress. I don't know. Thank you, Derek, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Please like and subscribe, and we'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye.